For millennia, we carved and shaped our tools with stone. And in turn, it shaped us, sharpened our intellect, allowed us to push new technological bounds. Then the age of stone gave way to something entirely new, metal. It changed everything. Thousands of years ago, we harnessed the elemental power of fire to heat and shape cold lumps of metal into anything we wanted. Metallurgy is one of the most important skills and trades humanity has ever developed. It's alchemy incarnate, a mystical and spellbinding magic. From the many folktales and legends around the world linking smiths and their work to gods and devils alike, we know that metalworking has inspired awe in humans from the dawn of its practice. From ancient times to the modern age, blacksmithing has remained an iconic symbol of human ingenuity and imagination. So, dear listener, let us gather around the forge and listen to tales of old. Hey there, it's Karen here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of the work we do over time and across cultures. Because being human is a curious gig. In today's episode, which is part one of two, we examine blacksmithing from the perspectives of the legends and folklore forged from the same fires as the revolutionary iron tools that so fundamentally shaped human experience. And what better way to dive into this topic than with our guest, Mark Norman, whose own podcast, The Folklore Podcast, has enjoyed over 1.25 million downloads to date, fueled by compelling content and, of course, a stellar host. With that, let's gather around the forge. Mark, thanks for joining us. Ah, hi, Karen. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me along. Yeah, well, I think it would be helpful if you could first orient our listeners a little bit. Um, tell us what folklore is for those of us who might not actually know the proper definition of it, even though we, we feel like we, we know a lot about it. Well, that, that's the kind of $64,000 question, really, isn't it? What is folklore? It's a question that I ask my students in the introduction to an online course that I teach uh, on British folklore. Uh, and without fail, they will normally come back at the start of that unit and say that it's all about old traditions and, and things that people used to believe and superstitions in a community. Um, but of course, it's it's not just that. That is that is part of it. Um, but you know, we see it every day. Bernie's mittens. That memes all over the internet at the moment. That's digital folklore. Uh, so, <laughs> so what is folklore? Well, the key is in the word, isn't it? Folklore, and that used to be two words: folk and law, before it was merged together into one. So, if we look at those two elements, well folk that's the people that believe these things or interact with these things um alan dundas who is very influential folklorist um at the university of california uh, now sadly deceased he gave us a really good useful very brief description of a group of people that we might term folk and, and he said it was to quote any two or more people who share at least one thing in common okay so folk 
is, is a group of people. It's a community. It's a gathering of people who, who have shared beliefs, shared interests, shared skills. And then law. Well, that comes from an old English word, which essentially means instruction. So, so the law is the collection of knowledge or the traditions which relate to the subject uh, according to that particular folk group, that group of people. So folk law is essentially the knowledge of the people. Well, Mark, that sounds like a really kind of practical and logical definition that makes a lot of sense. But it immediately to me raises the question of how do you do it? How do you study this thing? <laughs> well, again, there are many schools of thought with that, aren't they? I, I mean, there, there is an academic case for the study of folklore. Uh, and it used to be quite strong at one time. Uh, but these days, actually, not so much. Because there's so much crossover. Uh, I mean, you are an anthropologist, Karen. You're an archaeologist. You might class yourself as a historian as well. I do. All of those things. Exactly. And folklore will cross over with all of those things. But then it will also cross over with psychology, why people believe the things that they do. It will cross over oh, geography. If you look at the patterns of migration and how stories travel around the world. So... It's very difficult to pin down how to study folklore in some respects in an academic sense, because and this has happened many times before. You get a student who wants to um, do a master's or a doctorate in a, in a kind of folklore subject, and they get passed from department to department within the universities because nobody really knows who should supervise it because there's so much crossover. And, and that's one of the reasons that I firmly believe in the value of um, independent research alongside for folklore. Yeah, I'd, I'd love you to unpack that a little bit. Well, if we look back into the middle of the 20th century as a as an example, uh, I mean, we could go back earlier, but, but the late 19th, early 20th centuries, the kind of Victorian period is quite problematic in terms of folklore, because people were quite good at inventing things back then. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, that kind of um, muddies the water a little bit when you're trying to, to track stories and beliefs. That's not to say that there's anything wrong with that, and I'll come back to that point in a minute, but, um, but it does make things slightly more problematic. But if we look at, say, the middle of the 20th century, as an example, we have societies with good academic standing like the folklore society who who promote the study of folklore outside of an institution but alongside it if you like but if you look at that period of time much of the recording of folklore in the field is not done by people from academic institutions it's done by independent researchers who have an interest in the subject. And actually, in terms of folklore, we have to be really thankful to upper middle class ladies because they were great at collecting folklore. People like uh, Ethel Rudkin, Theo Brown uh, in the United Kingdom, 
people like um, Helen Creighton in Canada, for example, the, these people went out into the field and collected masses of folklore. And if they hadn't have done that, we wouldn't have such a rich and diverse amount of information as we now do on all of these subjects. And that is absolutely to be celebrated. Um, but the study of it then actually works equally as well in a non-academic field. It's very difficult in academia when you look at these sorts of subjects because you have to follow particular paths. You might have to follow a curriculum in some senses. You might have to follow particular research interests if people are funding your work. And that's great. And that gives you some really good in-depth analysis of some of this stuff. But for a broader picture, and we are dealing with a very broad picture with folklore, we're dealing with you know, the entirety of human life, if you like, in one way or another. Yeah, and academia absolutely has its place, but actually the study of folklore needs to be and is much broader than that for that reason. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as being um, very, um, at the risk of, of sounding dismissive, which is absolutely not at all, it's quite the opposite. I, I think as an as a historical archaeologist, in terms of my my actual niche specialty, I have a degree in anthropology, but I received it in archaeology and did it using you know documentary sources and sites that can benefit from that as well. And so you know, there's actually only so far you can get by pulling the material culture of past activity from the ground or or you know seeing it standing in 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 um, historical sites as it, as it often does in the, in the case of architecture, for example, or, or monuments, but there's only so much the data itself tells you. You, you need to um, apply a certain kind of narrative, uh, I feel, lens to that to actually make it understandable. And so much of the way that we explain culture is from oral history, it is this, that's what culture is at its basic definition as well. It's just shared beliefs by generally more than two people. <laughs> you know, it's like considered a whole cultural group, but I, I'm just very, very interested at the interplay between um, our disciplines. Mark, can you give us a little bit of a timestamp for uh, what time period and if applicable, you know, a geographical area that we're going to focus on in our conversation today? Well, that's quite tricky in some respects, because obviously uh, blacksmithing is a, a, a skill which we find across the world uh, and have done for a long time, as you, you in your field. Karen are very well aware. But everybody normally would associate blacksmithing, I suppose, with, with Iron Age um, communities as a kind of uh, origin point, if you like. But, you know, there's, there's evidence much earlier than that, isn't there? I mean, you look at um, this iron items that's been found came out of uh, Tutankhamun's tomb, didn't it? You know, this, this dagger that ended up being, well, as it was described, wasn't it, as being a gift from the gods. And it literally was because it was carved out of um, the iron that we find in meteorites. It had obviously fallen from heaven and, and been worked. It, in that it's way. amazing, so, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's the stuff of the gods that they flung it right down for them. I know it's really an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, we find um, we find a lot of mythology relating to, to blacksmiths, uh, Vulcan um being the the roman uh version of that and and then obviously 
in in old Norse, there are a lot of connections. Um, Wayland the Smith is a is a very well known, very popular story. But I mean, mythology is not the area that I tend to work with particularly. So so I won't concentrate on that earlier time because that would probably be a whole another episode in itself, I suppose. There, there was some work carried out in 2016 to try and trace population and language changes over time. Uh, and, and some of that work was done by analysing the spread of folk tales. And coming out of that, we find what is quite a well-known story in folklore, the story of the blacksmith and the devil. It turns out, as far as they can tell, if this study is correct, that this story is probably the oldest known folk tale that we have, as far as evidence for recording it is concerned. And it's been found in Russia, in Scandinavia, India, America, obviously the Grimm brothers recorded it because they recorded every folk tale you can think of, uh, and um, very prevalent in the UK as well. Uh, and that's really interesting because it, that does indeed hark right back to these these kind of uh, early mythological roots of uh, blacksmithing insofar as where the blacksmith acquires his or her and generally his it has to be said in these older stories um you know there are plenty of female blacksmiths now but there didn't used to be at the time where the blacksmith acquires his skills from and that uh, well the, the clue is in the title of that folk tale isn't it so this tale about the blacksmith and the devil is so interesting i mean on so many levels to me i mean you can unpack it to mean many, many things, right? I mean, it's the Smith is this clever guy. He's slippery. He, he tricks the devil. I mean, at least this is the version of the story that, that I know. Um, you know, I, I wonder if you could tell me if it, if it has that general um, outline across all the cultures where we see it, or do we see certain, you know, any differences anywhere? Tell me a little bit more about that. So we do find some variations in different versions of the story but but the the general uh, elements are pretty much the same in each one so uh, I'll, I'll give you one version by way of an example that has most of the elements in it so the blacksmith is approached by somebody who tries to distract him from his work uh, often it's a woman sometimes it's uh, a businessman depending on the age of the story uh, but the smith who um, is fairly savvy, notices that all is not quite right. And the person who is trying to distract him uh, doesn't have ordinary feet, but has cloven hooves. Ergo, it's the devil, you know, easy spot. So the smith grabs the devil by the nose using his tongs from the forge and drags the devil out of the smithy. All is well. And then the next day, the smith has another visitor this time it might be the businessman if it was the woman the first time. But some deal is tried to be enacted. Um, a large sum of money is offered in exchange for something to the blacksmith, for example. But again, the devil hasn't bothered to cover his feet. He, he never seems to learn, learn that it's a good idea. To, <laughs> I suspect it's an issue of shoe size yeah, versus shoe, the clothing. Shoe type, hood, right? Know? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's fairly tricky to fit in your average brogue, isn't it? So, so I suspect, yeah. that, you know, it's probably this. 
so anyway, the same thing happens. The blacksmith grabs his tongs and um, grabs the devil. But this time, instead of dragging them out, it, he says that he won't release the devil unless the devil agrees to give him much higher level of skill. Okay, so, so the devil agrees to give the blacksmith the wisdom to become a, an absolute artisan at his craft. And then the blacksmith releases the devil. Um, but then before he leaves, he, um, he makes the devil uh, promise one more thing. And that is that any house that the devil comes across over the door of which is hung one of the blacksmith's horseshoes, the devil will not enter. And this is where we get the root of the hanging a horseshoe over your door for good luck, for example. Mm. Um, so the, the key to this story is the, the fact that the blacksmith's skills are acquired through supernatural means. And that is something that moving into the kind of very superstition rich periods of history. So the early modern uh, and slightly beyond there where, where demons and devils and superstition is, is rife in a lot of these stories. That's where this whole idea of somebody in your community who is very highly skilled can't have just been naturally like that they must have had to have made some deal or some bargain in order to become that way i find it really interesting that that this ancient mythology of the blacksmith would be picked up at this time and given this new spin right you know it, it just it it's not as if this is a, a skill that is has newly burst upon the scene it's not as if you know someone's just invented a computer and oh my goodness that seems magical how is that possible without some kind of enlivening spirit inside of it you know what what do you make of the appearance of this particular story at that time well i, th I think the the one of, one of the really important elements in the way that these folk stories kind of become embedded happens um, when we move from the old religions into the uh, Christian period in some respects. Um, uh, and this happens particularly a lot during the period leading up to the early modern. And that, that is that um, the church takes a lot of these older stories and, and Christianizes them, if you like. So these events of, of the blacksmith getting his skills, they're, they're not immune from this, of course. And, and that happens with this story. Um, and it's placed uh, as something that happened to St. Dunstan, uh, one of the Christian saints. Um, he was born 988 AD, so, uh, just coming up to the, the turn of that millennium. Um, and he became an archbishop, um, yeah, and quite high up in the church. Uh, and this story then gets ascribed to him. So the devil comes to the forge and requests that Dunstan shoes his horse. But in this version of the story, Dunstan then fetches the shoes, but rather than shoeing the horse, he nails the shoes to the devil. Well, this obviously causes great discomfort to the devil. And this is where the pact is made then about um, not 
uh, approaching any house that has a horseshoe hung over the door and, and once the devil agrees, then Dunstan removes the horseshoes. Um, and we, we still see evidence of this because um, apart from a dove as well, uh, the tongs, the Smith's tongs, which are used often in these stories to grab the nose of the devil uh, are, are still seen as a, a symbol of St. Dunstan. But um, what's missing from this story is the element about the supernatural uh, ascribing of skills, of course, because uh, in Christian versions of the story, those skills wouldn't wouldn't come from from the devil or from his side. So that that we lose that element at this time. Uh, but but where it's important in in that kind of middle period of our history um, is that it counts for a lot of um, stories of othering of people. And we find this in different skills, of course, as well. We find it with um, women who were healers in the community, of course, and were outcast and classed as other. They had skills which must come from some supernatural means. We find it with other rural crafts like weavers as well particularly anybody who is who is highly skilled must have some supernatural connection and we find this kind of othering within the community of them yeah i i obviously what came to mind immediately is the witchcraft and the and the, the witch trials of this early modern period in in europe and then of course in colonial north america but what i always have trouble wrapping my head around and you know Arguably, you know, the thing about witchcraft is is a whole gendered issue as well, which which I think um, adds a different layer to everything. But you're looking at iron workers. A blacksmith is an absolutely essential skill and service in in any community. It seems a bit confounding and self defeating to sort of layer it with all of this, you know, what can only be described really as uh, uh, negative folklore yes in some respects um although there are the positive aspects of folklore within within smithing absolutely outweigh the negatives um and we can kind of see that turn around in in some respects as well in, in uh another story or a well, legend if you like from from the medieval period um blacksmithing was one of uh, the seven mechanical arts. So that's the seven skills which, which are seen as being vital to a community at that time. Tailoring and weaving, farming, architecture, uh, trade and, and cooking and hunting. These, these are the other ones. Um, and the, we find a story which relates to King Alfred, actually going back quite a long way, where, where these seven trades are all brought together a representative from each trade is brought to the king so that the king can decide which is the most important trade in a community so a banquet is um is laid on for these representatives and they all have to bring a specimen of their work and the tools that they use in their work along to this banquet so that the king can judge which is the finest one. And the, the way that this will be judged is which one can best get on without the help of the others for the longest period. So the king 
assesses all the trades and he decides that because of the beauty of the finished article, the tailor is the most important trade. So he's declared to represent all of the other trades as the most important. And obviously this decision doesn't sit well with the blacksmith who becomes very jealous. And he Where says- Where does the tailor get the... their needles without the blacksmith? Well, exactly, <laughs> sorry, this, is the, this is the key. Oh, this sorry, key, I, I busted your punchline. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. This is the key. This is where we see the whole thing turn around, you see, because you're absolutely right. They can't, and nor can any of the others. So the, the, the blacksmith gets very grumpy and stomps off and says, right, that's it. I'm not going to work if you all think that the tailor's the best. And off he goes. And of course, over a period of time, then the king's horse needs new shoes. The other people's mm -hmm. tools break or they wear <laughs> out. And what happens? There's nobody there to do it. So everybody goes to the forge, tries to make their own. This obviously doesn't go well. And then eventually at the end of the story the blacksmith returns he's actually brought back um by one of the saints saint clement um and the king says yeah all right i made a mistake you're the most important not the tailor and all of the other trades people who can't work kind of go yeah 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 it's all you uh and this is then where we we see this kind of positive aspect of the blacksmith being key in a community and we see all sorts of songs and rhymes coming out of this period as well um we see some folk traditions celebrated around the date of saint clement's day because of saint clement bringing the blacksmith back even now so we can see this kind of um turnaround from that point and, the, and there is in fact a lot then of, of positive superstition and belief that's a, that's ascribed to a blacksmith and the forge from this time. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that if you could. I already said about the horseshoe as, as one which everybody knows, of course, um, the hanging of the horseshoe. Um, but actually on that point, Karen, which way up do you hang it? Oh, I, I think you're meant to hang it with the open end up so the luck doesn't fall out. That's the answer that most people will give you. They have the heels facing upwards to keep the luck in. Uh, but blacksmiths don't. They hang it the other way up in the forge. They hang it uh, with the heels facing down. And that's so that the good luck pours out of the horseshoe and into the forge. Into oh, yeah, that equipment. actually makes and a lot more sense. Why do you want to just keep your luck locked away? You need to apply it in your daily life. <laughs> that's a great life yeah, hack. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And there are some there are some parts of the world where where it does tend to be hung. I think I think uh, there are um, areas within Appalachia, for example, where they tend to hang it the other way up for that reason. So most people, yes, still hang it uh, with the heels facing up. But but there you go. The blacksmith doesn't. The blacksmith hangs it the other way, uh, the other way up. Also, it should be a new shoe as well. Um, because it's bad luck to use shoes that have been thrown from a, uh, from a horse, for example. Yeah, that makes sense. That would suggest maybe there was some kind of flaw or bad karma of some kind associated with it. Yeah. And as well, if you, if you can't get a new shoe, then you can use an old shoe, but only if it's been removed by the blacksmith, not by somebody else, because they're the only person, obviously, who has the skills to do it. So if I go to my, my local antique shop and, and see a, a, just a charming example 
of, of a horseshoe, it would not in strictly correct terms, be great luck if I brought it home. No, in, in, in terms of the original superstitious belief, no. But of, but of course, these days, it's not the actual strict belief. It's more the custom that's, that's important to people. And people, you know, like to do these things because it's customary to do it. And I think there's often, there's just an ingrained kind of not wanting to tempt fate isn't there about these things you know people don't walk under a ladder but there's you know they don't do that for any kind of proven scientific reason um they do it because traditionally it's bad luck to walk under a ladder and so you don't do it i mean people do these things almost automatically now without actually believing in the original superstition behind them and i find that really interesting that's one of the points actually that i was going to come back to well, I was saying right at the beginning about the study of folklore. Um, your kind of work, Karen, is very different because you're working in history often uh, and, and archaeology, especially with, with tangible facts. Um, of course, folklore is slightly different. And, and when you're looking at beliefs and superstitions, we're not interested as folklorists as to whether those things are actually true it's like ghosts you know we're not um setting out uh like like scooby-doo and the rest of the gang to to kind of prove or disprove that a ghost exists we're interested as folklorists in um why people have experiences why stories transmit why they change and develop and and how they change and develop so it's very much intangible and the, the same is true of these kind of superstitions such as hanging a horseshoe you do them because you don't want to tempt fate and not do them but you don't actually believe them or do you yeah i i mean i think it's it's actually on the one hand quite simple but it's also really complex um and you know this idea uh that i i actually don't think that i have any more definitive tools than you do to study the origins of of these beliefs or practices and you know archaeology of course is generally concerned with tangible material remains um but the kind of archaeology i do i i equally use the historical sources when i have them and you know there's there's on the you know i could count on one hand maybe the types of historical fact that you actually can take at face value so um you know i think it it's just trying to understand why people do what they do and that's the great mystery i mean that's what keeps me studying what i do i mean it, it's just so fascinating what do you make of these colloquial sayings that all seem to derive from blacksmithing things like you know, something rings true, um, you know, the, your, your urge to strike while the iron is hot. Uh, there seem to be more of those kinds of sayings to do with blacksmithing than with other trades that I can think of at least. I, I don't know what you've found in your experience and what you think about that. Of course, the difficulty with etymology is finding a, a you know, a, an absolute connection between things. So, we, we might say strike while the iron is hot is connected to blacksmithing, but do we have proof of it? Uh, 
it's likely, but we don't. So we can only speculate with a lot of these things. And we find that a lot with folklore. It makes sense with, with strike while the iron is hot because um, you can't forge cold metal. So if, if you don't act quickly when you take something out of a forge, you can't improve it or you can't work upon it. So that absolutely makes sense. The ringing one is, is it's slightly more tricky, but it possibly it's connected to the idea of ringing the anvil, which is uh, something which definitely is connected to uh, superstition in blacksmithing. And that's, that's a way of keeping the devil at bay. So there's, there's a folk story relating to that as well, where the, the smith is shoeing a horse um, out in the open air because it's a nice day at the front of the forge, the horse is, is tied up out there and the devil is walking past. It's always the devil. The He's devil always is out and about. Past. He gets everywhere. <laughs> Considering the lack of shoes, you, you've got to wonder, haven't you? But no, the devil is walking past. He hears the ringing of the anvil. So that is uh, the blacksmith hitting the anvil with the hammer between blows on the horseshoe. And the devil wonders what the noise is and what's going on. So he goes to investigate, watches the blacksmith working, um, nailing the shoes on and how pleased the horse is with the new shoes. So the devil decides that um, the blacksmith should make him a pair of shoes. So he asks the blacksmith to do so. Of course, the blacksmith realizes that it's the devil. These are the kind of crossovers <laughs> that you see in all these stories. So the blacksmith makes a pair of shoes for the devil, but he makes them too small, purposely too small, and trims the devil's hooves too much so that the shoes are very painful to wear and difficult to take off. So the devil leaves uh, and is in pain for many I, days. I just love, I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing because I'm just imagining, you know, when you go into the shoe store, you can you picture try it, on your it. shoe. No, no, I'm sort of imagining the salesperson bending over and, and, you know, purposely fitting you with miserably small shoes. And, you, you know, the idea that the devil wouldn't speak right up, but will let himself be crammed into these shoes and then hobble off is just somehow very funny. Um, I mean, it feels like a, <laughs> an act of human agency, right? in the in the face of evil or what, whatever you could interpret it however you want but that that's how it's striking me but with a really funny twist i'm sorry Continue. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there, there are definitely flaws to be found aren't there in a lot of these stories yeah <laughs> but the, the purpose of this story really is to, is to tell how because the devil leaves in pain uh which continues for quite a while afterwards that he won't obviously come back uh, won't go near the forge again so Ringing the anvil, it is said, is a way of keeping the devil at bay. So that is why blacksmiths do it. Of course, that isn't why blacksmiths do it. They, they do it because it keeps heat in the hammer. Um, but the, the folkloric story behind it is that it's a way of keeping the devil at bay. So maybe, yeah, there's a connection to, to ringing in this sense. As it's hard to trace. Oh, but I love that. Let, let's follow that trail a little bit. Um, what other folkloric associations, if any, can, can we make with the blacksmith's tools themselves? That's a difficult question to answer because most of the connections are more to do with the smith themselves or with um, the skills that he has. 
I mean, there, there are cases, I suppose, in some respects, um, the blacksmith would always leave the tools crossed, for example, on the um, on the fire at the end of the day. And again, that's to keep the devil at bay because iron, of course, is, is there's a lot of uh, um, folklore connected to iron warding off evil. And you probably know, Karen, that goes back again to the well, Tell us about that. I, I think that our, our listeners would love to hear about that. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, the, the ancient Egyptians, we find this there, that, uh, that iron is, uh, is good for keeping evil at bay. And, and it uh, crosses over into much later folklore as well. So it's said in some cases that witches can't cross iron. Um, and that there are uh, various parallels between witches and blacksmiths, actually, in, in other ways as well. But in, in this case, witches can't cross iron. Uh, touching iron protects you from the evil eye, for example. Um, and because iron has these magical properties, there's ideas within the folklore as well that blacksmiths are impervious to harm because of the working with iron. So there's a, a, a story where a blacksmith is, is playing cards and refuses to stop. Um, and that, that story brings together these kind of aspects of, of blacksmithing and, and fairy folklore as well. Um, it's, it's quite a long story, so I won't go into it in too much detail, but, but obviously, um, you know, the, the, the blacksmith comes out of it safe because um he has iron on him so the fairies can't take him away whereas other people get taken away so so the idea that the iron is protective sits very firmly with blacksmithing uh and also uh iron is is connected a lot as well to healing um and that there are lots of examples of, of blacksmiths uh, as healers, this is the the connection with witchcraft that I was I was kind of inferring just now, where where um, uh, those healing skills that that the uh, cunning woman would have in a village, for example, some of those are ascribed to blacksmiths as well. So people would use iron themselves as a healing mechanism, and and there are also things that you could take away from a forge, which were good as well. Like the, the water from the forge at the end of the day was said to have healing properties, for example, to wart charming. There's, there's another quite good one that, that said that um, if on the day before Easter you bit on a piece of iron, then it would avoid you'd avoid toothache for the rest of the year. Which I, I think is interesting, but I would argue biting too hard on a piece of iron is probably likely to cause more <laughs> tooth conditions than it would actually. Uh, yeah. It would actually um, to uh, cure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I'd want to try that one. I, I'd advise against it. I think, uh, and we we find the same things in other cultures as well. Of course, not you know I've been focusing very much on the kind of um, Western traditions purely because that's what I tend to work with, as I say. Um, but we do find it in, in other cultures and other belief systems as well. So as, um, Muslim mothers used iron, for example, uh, to cure a child who had hiccups. So there's a connection there. And again, it involves the blacksmith because um, 
you'd have to collect some money from seven people. Uh, seven is an interesting number, of course, we know in, in terms oh, of yeah. folklore, you know, there are the seventh son of a seventh son and, and all those sorts of stories are really key. That, that also uh, is ascribed, the seventh generation blacksmiths are said to be extra skilled as well. Um, but yes, most, Muslim mothers would have to collect an amount of money from, from seven people. Um, and that money is then taken to a blacksmith and the blacksmith uses that money to make an amulet. And that amulet is placed on the child's clothes uh, as a cure against the hiccups. Uh, cramp, cramp is another one. Um, you could keep cramp away by keeping a rusty sword next to the bed. The difficulty with that one is that they, they say that um, a rusty sword, but you wouldn't want it to be blunt because dull iron invites bad luck into a house. Um, so you'd want it to be sharp. And that's difficult if it's rusty. So that's, Sharp, that's quite rusty. That's mm. quite pro problematic. And that that's in that demonstrates kind of one of the difficult things about these kind of traditional superstitious beliefs is that they are often very contradictory. You look at um, things like uh, well baking, for example, and and people saying, well, you shouldn't you shouldn't bake on a particular day because it's bad luck and other people say that you should bake on a particular day good friday is one you shouldn't bake on good friday according to some people because the water will turn into blood because of the um, connection to the crucifixion uh, whereas other people say that good friday is a good day to bake for for other reasons so you often find when you compare these beliefs that they are contradictory from one place to another and so there's this plethora of beliefs and superstitions around blacksmithing and, you know, the skills that they possessed. Do we know of any implications for those who practice the trade in the early modern period as a result of, of all of this really powerful undercurrent of, of stories about them? No, not in the same way as you find with witchcraft stories, for example. Um, I mean, everybody is very familiar with the kind of person. Yeah, that was a really, really um, serious implication <laughs> to be caught up yeah, into the witch yeah. hysteria, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we don't find that in the same way with blacksmiths. What, what you tend to find with skills such as blacksmithing and weaving for example as I referred to earlier is that it's after the death of the tradesperson that you find more negative connotations so if we look at um, ghost and haunting folklore for example you often find that um, that it's after the death that a ghost comes back and has negative um, attributes. So, and what tends to happen is that um, people are naturally wary of somebody whose skills are said to come from supernatural means, um, but they won't do anything about it while that person is alive because they would consider sure, it too dangerous. dangerous to do yeah. so. 
so it's after they die that people start to rumor monger about oh did you know about this aspect and that aspect of a person because of course it's safe to do so then and that's where we find ghosts within folklore that have these negative attributes because they've been ascribed to them um, post-mortem during storytelling if you like and, and they just kind of change and develop and grow over time and, and these ghosts tend to become more malicious then because of it. See, I think that's so interesting that people could kind of separate if you will um, all of this um, potentially maleficent association of the craftsperson with you know evil and the devil and the goods they produce using these skills that are supposedly the link to whatever supernatural element is is being um, concerned uh, i'm sorry I, I just said two words at once this um, <laughs> the idea that people can divorce the practical essential objects that the smith created using these skills which are said to have had this kind of malevolent source or at the very least supernatural and, and mysterious is really interesting that they can sort of justify this you know obviously people aren't going to go without metal goods um but you know after the smith is gone as you say they can start to then whisper about oh you know how did he how did he get that 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 ability that that's that's a little off you know i mean it, it's a very interesting tension to, to me at least yes uh, and and of course everybody needs these skills don't they um, but whereas yeah. uh whereas with the blacksmith people will will naturally go uh and, and acquire what they need in public and that's no problem of course it was very different wasn't it with the uh the cunning woman who was in the cottage at the bottom of the lane at the end of the village that that essentially acted you know as the village doctor in many communities uh, but because the othering was much stronger in those senses, it's like, yeah, everybody in the community would go there, but nobody would admit to going there and they'd all go under cover of darkness. And, and yeah, it's no, nobody wanted anybody else to know that they were consulting with a person like that. So there is an interesting juxtaposition, isn't there, between... I suppose there is a, a gendering element there. I was going to say, you know, it begins with the big letter G. Well. Yes. <laughs> yes, there's yeah. a distinction there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there is. Because, because of course, healers weren't just women either. Um, no, yeah, by no means. But, were, but the number of, of males who were caught up in this, this dragnet of the witch hysteria were, you know, uh, minuscule compared to women. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting as well that you're saying about the ascribing of these things that uh, in the same way that um, folk stories took on Christian elements later on, some of these superstitions did as well, actually, because I, I said earlier that the water in a forge was, was said to be curative, for example. Um, but it was also said that a blacksmith could regain strength by washing his hands in the same water but that was considered to be effective because it was said that uh, the virgin mary had once blessed a blacksmith's water and so therefore mm -hmm. that idea carries forward that um 
it's almost like holy water in a way. So that's kind of an example of taking these curative elements which are ascribed to something else previously and just changing the origin story a little bit to them. Sure. I mean, it, it, the, the Christian church co-opted everything it could that it thought would be useful, right? It's like the Roman Empire. I mean, they come along yeah. <laughs> and I know I, you know, sort of absorb local traditions, but allow them to continue. They just might either throw a tax on top or call it something else, right? I mean, Yule and Christmas, it, you know, it's kind of suspicious that Jesus Christ was born on December 25th, isn't it? <laughs> you know, right in the middle of this great pagan holiday. So yeah, it's quite convenient, isn't it? Especially with all the calendar sure changes over time as well. Yeah, sure is. Mark, thank you so much for sharing with me all of your fascinating knowledge of the um, folklore around blacksmithing, which, you know, is, is as deep as human roots of tool making itself in some respects, but how really I didn't realize how much of what we think of today as blacksmithing lore actually emerged in the early modern period. Oh, no problem. You're very welcome. And, uh, and as you would expect, we scratched the surface. There's, there's plenty more. You know, I didn't even tell you how you could use the dust from a blacksmith's forge to cure flatulence, for example. You'll have to find that one oh, out for yourself. That actually sounds like that could be useful. All right. We're going to have a part two. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. Today, we considered what blacksmithing has meant in human society from when it first emerged as an all-but-magical skill, and examine some of the legends and folklore that reflect the supernatural overtones of this ancient practice. Coming up in part two, we'll move away from the devil and his tricks to the blacksmith as a central, entirely human figure in his community. Two communities, actually, nearly polar opposites, giving us a more layered and nuanced view of blacksmiths in action in different social, ethnic, and economic contexts. Until next time. Hey there. You can find today's guest at Mr. underscore Mark underscore Norman on Twitter. His podcast can be found at Folklore Pod on Twitter. And learn more about the Folklore Network at thefolklorepodcast.com. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries, and check us out at WorkingOvertimePodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.